Do I say Professor Wilson now? Yep. <laughs> Professor Wilson has been a long-standing um, colleague for some of us, and when I joined the school, he was already um, there. Uh, so he's probably one of the longest ones of um, seats, and uh, you know, one of those people who remember it back to the Senate House and to the Russell Square, and that. Um, really brings us now to this modern building at the UCL and the way in which SEALS has become one of UCL's success stories, really, including um, the contribution from all those people like Professor Wilson, who has an outstanding, truly outstanding research profile. And that really includes his latest book, Ukrainian Crisis, that has become an international bestseller for Yale University Press. It has a beautiful subtitle that goes, What the West Needs to Know. And of course, it's not just the academic book. Um, Andrew has also done multiple briefings to number 10, to the European Union, to foreign governments, exactly explaining to them what the West has to know about Ukraine. His other work includes um, his um, The Ukrainians, Unexpected Nation. Now we've just had a fourth edition of that book, which is already setting out. We also have Ukraine's Orange Revolution that has won Alec Nov prize of the British Association of Slavonic and East European Studies Review, but he's probably major uh, work that has got hundreds of citations is the one about virtual politics and faking democracy. Here he has a unique picture and he actually created a unique analysis of vocabulary um, of a mastery of the dark arts of public relations and the way in which it can be used for political purposes. Andrew Wilson, Professor Wilson, um, is actually, has actually made it to the top three opinion makers on Ukraine in the world. The other two include the current president, Petro Poroshenko, and the former prime minister, Yulia Tymoshenko. So you are in good company there, not just virtually, but also <laughs> on the same panels and trying to get some sense me and two, those people. Me and two crooks. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, to cut the story short, should I just say that Professor Wilson has had an unprecedented impact uh, during the Ukraine-Russia standoff over the Crimea and East Ukraine. He has written for a whole range of national and international media, including Daily Mirror. I wonder which page that was. And uh, international outlets such as Foreign Policy, El País, and the others. He's also a senior policy fellow at the European Council for Relations. So um, please welcome Professor Wilson with his brilliant lecture, the title of which I'm not going to read out because it's on the slide. Thank you. Well, uh, thank you both for those warm words. Thank you all for coming. Thank you to Claudia and Michael for organising everything. Um, some quick um, points to make before I start. Firstly, I'm barely going to mention Ukraine. Uh, I'll mention it a little, uh, but barely. I'm 
sure most of you will cope. Um, secondly, uh, Aliona asked me to be both autobiographical. Let's talk about my own research uh, in the past and in the present, and to make it as accessible as possible. So I'll ditch the full text and I'll just be talking to the PowerPoint. Uh, and lastly, about the title. Um, uh, the way the UCL bureaucracy works, slowly, is that you're first asked to think about a title. Uh, in this case, last summer. So originally I was going to talk about um, post-truth politics. So that's already a cliche uh, in the Oxford English Dictionary. Uh, then I was going to talk about um, Russia's covert interference in the US elections. Except it wasn't very covert, so you know about it already. <laughs> I will be talking about that, but via first talking about Russia. Because the way to understand what Russia may or may not have done uh, in the US elections uh, is to understand how they operate um, in their own country. Uh, so that's where I'll start. Um, as I said, uh, I wrote a book on political technology uh, 11 years ago now. Uh, so this is <laughs> Russian political technologies. Uh, so they visiting Russia 15, 20 years ago, and it became apparent that there was this unique way of talking about a unique type of local politics. And as you can see, the toolbox is pretty full, or even overflowing. It's not a single uh, tool like spin uh, that we know, know about in the West. It's plural. And in fact, there are a lot of dirty tricks that we used in the 1990s. Initially, um, there was a real opposition in Russia, and you had to um, disable it by various means. Uh, and it was also like a, a kind of competitive industry. There were, there were many, many firms operate, operating like what they were businesses. They made a lot of money. Um, but what they were offering was, um, in Russian, they would uh, decide any question for you. Organising victory was their raison d'etre. And some of them were, well, most of them were kind of deeply cynical, um, but in a kind of pseudo-intellectual way, that uh, the way they thought politics worked in Russia was the way they assumed it worked everywhere in the world. That it was all about a society of spectacle. So you could also compare them to uh, Nastasia Filipovna, those of you who know the idiot. Uh, she's a kind of symbol of complete amorality. She throws uh, 100,000 rubles on the fire because she can, because she's rich. Um, so this idea of kind of liberated post-modern freedom. And this is one of the companies. The joke is that this is the most respectable company. It's actually slightly boring. Uh, but it is, is named after Nicola M. Machiavelli. Uh, there he is. So they were selling Machiavellian arts as they understood them. And the most famous though of this grand building uh, opposite the Kremlin uh, foundation for effective politics. Um, uh, it kind of wound itself down in 2011. Uh, um, but as you can see, it's a big foundation with lots of money and resources. And then the 90s were a kind of transitional period. First of all, the, uh, the job 
to be done was to control the chessboard, as one of these guys said to me in an interview. But all of the pieces, both black and white. Um, and um, this is largely achieved um, from a kind of competitive, anarchic, would-be democracy uh, over a process of about 10 years. The Kremlin achieved a kind of monopoly of manipulation. So this one guy, Lysar Circle, uh, became the, the only person with a right to uh, practice these dark arts, if you like. So here he is looking at his protégés, rejecting opposition uh, to the Kremlin. Oh, and there's this idea of the Kremlin controlling everything, like this sinister octopus. Um, and there were many types of political technology, but the key one, the first key one to remember is that in this process, politicians become uh, controlled subjects, um, virtual subjects. Some of them are real people, flesh and blood, like Vladimir Zhirinovsky, who we're supposed to be afraid of, according to Time magazine. But he's basically best, better understood as an actor. Right. And he plays various roles of nationalist, all loud mouth, in this cartoon. So even the opposition, by the kind of time this process matured, was often fake. So in the late noughties, when you had so-called coloured revolutions uh, in countries like Ukraine, often with uh, you know, orange or tulip or whatever, so they often have flowers as symbols. This party is sort of claiming to exist in that kind of spirit, civic force. Uh, but even the opposition, this party was fake. And so I thought this is actually a Ukrainian party, one of my favourites, which is radically fake, because it simply didn't exist at all, um, at least at the start. Uh, it only existed as TV adverts. Um, I actually did the legwork. I went to its office and ran the uh, a slightly amused old lady. Uh, and it was a rival to the official Communist Party, called Communist Party of Ukraine, really. Slightly amusing, but its slogan is don't let yourself be fooled. Vote <laughs> for the real Communist Party. Uh, and the other joke, actually, is that in 2015, after the conflict with Russia, uh, Ukraine banned communist symbols and the real Communist Party. Because the real Communist Party had uh, acted in, to promote Russian interests. Uh, but to be consistent, they had to ban the fake as well. This one. Um, once, once everybody is a virtual subject, um, an actor, if you were, uh, public politics loses all meaning. It simply doesn't matter much in Russia anymore, you could argue. And Putin was almost tripped up by this in, in 2011. But um, uh, the system was over-controlled. Um, the election in 2011 was too boring. It wasn't, <laughs> there wasn't arguably enough manipulation in it. Putin survived and he had to kind of increase the dose uh, in order to win re-election in 2012. So this hiccup was interesting in itself. People were tuned out, and they had to be forcibly tuned back in. Um, but apart from this interlude, you have 
a system that's generated by both supply and demand. Russians now understand this process and adjust to it. Um, do they believe the story? Well, that's kind of not the right question. Whatever the story is, you have to parrot it. Um, so you get a virtual chorus of everybody saying the same thing. And Elizabeth, who's sitting over there, she's done some very interesting um, research on the media, where the key word is added fatness or adequacy. People understand that they have to adjust to the way the system works. Um, so we often uh, don't understand this in the West. Just because Russians say the same thing all the time, um, we misinterpret that for deep-rooted uh, national interest or whatever. But it's not. It's pe people following the loyalty test and simply saying what they're expected to say. Uh, academic books don't have much of an effect. Right. So not only does this, does this uh, culture still exist, it's spread since my book came out, particularly because it came out at the same time as the Orange Revolution. Uh, so Russia devised means of inoculating itself against uh, the spread of that type of popular protest. Instead of just faking uh, politics, it's not like faking civil society as well. Um, and increasingly operated abroad to sort of, kind of protect the kind of outer perimeter. Uh, you also got um, the theatre of election monitoring. monitoring. That's, this is one of my favourite examples. So this guy is an Austrian MEP visiting the so-called referendum in the Donbass self-declared republics in 2014. His job is to endorse the referendum on Russia's behalf. He's being interviewed and he's saying, no, there's no problem with um, uh, people in uniforms carrying guns. Uh, people are voting in the open without intimidation. There's a guy in uniform, right kind. <coughs> but uh, the most important change um, since 2005, because this has changed for all of us, is new media, social media, which, far from outflanking the Russian system, uh, uh, the Kremlin political technologists have been able to co-opt and adapt to their own purposes. This is super interesting, because originally political technology was a name, uh, and it wasn't actually that technological, it was just about dirty tricks, really. Whereas this time, the technology, Political technology is really about technology and how you um, spread these kind of politics of manipulation into social media. People have caught up on this, the Kremlin trolls, the kind of individuals, but the, the system changes all the time. So it's now industrialised. Um, people, this is an interesting phrase that some. Um, you can turn social media into sausage. You can just, by controlling the inputs, um, you turn it into a sausage shop. Uh, and this is sort of kind of new terminology. Uh, leaders of public opinion, uh, the kind of people who have lots of followers, etc., uh, 
on uh, Twitter or whatever, also means crowbars. They can influence <laughs> opinion. They, of course, don't have to be real. Um, uh, and you have uh, technological systems for spreading hashtags or uh, other digital messages um, to get the process started before they are taken up by real people. So the, the troll used to be the, the paradigm even a couple of years ago, a nasty individual. Uh, now it's the bot and the bot army. So this is actually from a Ukrainian newspaper. Uh, which is wrong, of course, because the minions are real. Uh, <laughs> but um, it's actually about the, the, the country of the bots, you know, how, how this kind of thing is happening in Ukraine, too. Uh, and the point of all this um, if the first feature of mature uh, political technology in Russia is virtual subjects, the second is, is message control. Uh, controlling uh, the message through the media, uh, even traditional TV, of course. Um, and the message is whatever the, the, the Kremlin says it is. It's the famous slogan from 207, 208. Election cycle. Putin's plan. Um, Presumably he decided what it would be in the future, but it's not explained. Whatever Putin's plan is, he's right. Um, and um, propaganda messages can be pretty crude. Uh, this is a uh, after the Russian occupation of Crimea. This is actually a, a show in Sevastopol in August 2014, I think. Uh, and it's Ukrainians dance goose-stepping in swastika formation because they're Nazis. Um, so some, some images could be quite crude, but it does work. The kind of equivalent of the kind of two-minute hate you get in 1984. <laughs> yeah. um, in terms of ongoing work, uh, you have to take it for granted for me that um, Russian media was put, putting out a, a particular message. So what I've shown here is public opinion. So ideally you'd map how the message is spread in media and how public opinion reacts. Um, but this is Russian opinion. What is your opinion of the US today? Red is negative. Uh, we won't get too far back. But it spikes during the war in Georgia and goes massively up during the recent crisis and have all this anti-US um, stuff in the Russian media. Now the next slide is in Russian but it's super up to date. So I thought I'd add it in because it shows it coming back down. Because since Trump's election you've had warm words. So you can drive the figures up, you can bring them back down. Attitudes to the EU used to be fairly positive been driven into negative in recent years. This is really indicative because the Russians like the Georgians. Um, they like Georgian food, they like Georgian wine, etc. Uh, so you've got this very distinctive spike 
in the red, which is anti-Georgia attitudes during the war in 2008, which has since faded. Uh, even more so with Ukraine. Again, you had a spike during the war in Georgia. But negatives used to be pretty low until fairly recently, where the uh, Ukrainians have turned into an enemy as well. So it does work. Um, and it has started to spread. Uh, Russia has its propaganda channels, including the formal ones, um, organisations like Russian World. And this one, you probably don't know, uh, what used to be called Russia Today is now RT. Now its motto is not, interestingly, Putin is great, or Russia is great. Uh, it's targeted at sceptical audiences in the West, question more. Russians think this is a super powerful propaganda instrument. Which is the more powerful weapon RT used? Right. Uh, so it has sceptical politicians like Jeremy Corbyn, oh, sorry, Pete. <laughs> but it also has a quite popular style. This is RT celebrating Corbyn's victory <laughs> as leader. Which is a bridge to America um, and um, recent events there. I'm mainly talking about political technology. Um, Americans, well, Californian tech millionaires love the phrase disruptive technology to describe their own work. And some of this will be very familiar to you, but um, Americans now get uh, their news sometimes or often from social media or traditional sources. Well, this is super interesting, but most people only go to one site when they're on social media. Uh, the younger you are, the more likely you are to use social media. Pretty obvious. Um, and some of you may have come across some... Oh, to slightly come around. Oh, yeah, you actually got a word in there. Just giving that away. All right. I've ruined that, Jake. <laughs> Trump played the same kind of effect. Uh, 1984, as you may know, has gone to the top of Amazon bestseller list in America. Quite rightly. Often it's not Trump, it's this guy, Steve Bannon, uh, his sort of chief ideologist. <laughs> I'm signing up why he is literally portrayed as a grim reaper. This is him, yeah, as Big Brother in 1984. And he has said, he said a couple of years ago, I'm a Leninist. Lenin wanted to destroy the state, and that's my goal too. I want to bring everything crashing down and destroy all the state's expansion. Last month, now in power, he said his goal was the deconstruction of the administrative state in America. Using, in part, this disruptive technology. It's powerful because it's not new. Uh, Fox News, the Judge Report, um, 
played a similar role back in the 90s. So one reason we are where we are now is because this process has been going on for a long time. Republicans, in fact, called it disintermediation, metaphor from economics, where you take out intermediaries in a supply chain and contact um, your buyers direct. And it's a political metaphor for taking out traditional media and even uh, parties to appeal directly to voters. So the problem is not just that disruptions happen. Disruptive media technologies are nothing new in American politics. They've arisen periodically since the early 19th century. What's new now is the system's difficulty in coping with them. But, uh, since Watergate, although the process hasn't been linear, um, American institutions have got progressively weaker, so they're an easier target for this kind of thing. And this is what I was going to jump for. Some of you have also seen this very cool map that uh, I think was in the Observer. Uh, Jonathan Albright, US academic, maps the kind of alternative sites uh, and how they feed into and in terms of traffic surround, strangle and almost dwarf and other stuff in the middle of the New York Times. So this isn't just a, a marginal phenomenon. And the key disruptive technology is the same as in Russia. It's the bot and the bot army. Uh, hacking is a, is a great story. Um, but it's not really the most important story in the US election. Uh, the most important thing is the way in which... Um, this is an institute in Oxford, uh, the Oxford Internet Institute, the unit for computational propaganda. Up to a third of digital trails, tweets, hashtags, or whatever, uh, are now artificially generated by these bot armies. Uh, and according to the director, this is being done by people who understand information structure. Structure? Sorry, my take. <laughs> who are bulk buying domain names and then using automation to blast out a certain message to make Trump look like he's a consensus. <coughs> uh, so the key strategy here is multiplication. <coughs> Using these internet technologies to big up your support. So the most important example was the debates in the US where you got hashtag Trump won. Uh, Trump, of course, joins in once this process is uh, sufficiently developed. Yes, I did. Um, but uh, the process, the initial process of launching this particular hashtag uh, was traced by the New York Times to his guys. So this is my slightly simplified version of that big cloud diagram. Um, you've all heard about social media and the problems that exist there, where people subdivide into smaller and smaller groups and only talk to each other. But I've separated that out from these, this kind of alt-media world, uh, often mainly in the US alt-right, but not exclusively. Uh, particularly because that then gives you two factors, a mainstream or, as Trump had it, mainstream. Media is only one. Uh, so this is how modern politics works. 
struggle between these three. So what's Russia's role? Um, this is a poster in Moscow. Let's make the little quick together again. Putin and uh, Trump in partnership. Um, hacking, as I say, is only part of the story. Uh, Trump's linked with Russia are only part of the story, though it might make him ultimately impeachable. Uh, I, I suspect it might be quite traditional about money and hotels, etc. Um, the RT Hubble um, isn't really the story either. Um, Russia invested a lot of money in it, and it's, it's okay, it's an option worth having. But Russia found that it, even if it's rebranded, you, know, you can't command a big audience for this kind of channel. What's much more important is the way that Russians, uh, anybody can do this, is the way you look for your kind of thing. Um, the kind of stories that uh, favour the kind of narrative you want to uh, encourage. And then you put them through this sausage machine, this uh, troll multiplying, uh, bot multiplying process. Uh, so, taking a narrative that already exists and multiplying its effect is the most important thing I would argue. But we don't yet know enough about Paul Manifold. Um, he worked for disgraced Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych and then for Trump last year uh, until he got into a kind of scandal with huge bags of cash um, from his time in Ukraine. Um, and when uh, Trump was elected, the Ukrainian press, which was all over this story, uh, um, gave up because they were so terrified of the prospect of Trump and him doing a, a deal over their heads with Russia. They didn't want to be seen to be persecuting this guy. But they had been looking at a really interesting story, which is that... Um, um, Manafort had been responsible for hiring uh, Russian and Ukrainian passport holders to do some of this bot type work and other dirty tricks for Trump. And many of, uh, many of um, the things that were done in the Trump campaign would be familiar to a, a Russian. Um, so that's just my adaptive map putting Russia in as a kind of nudger to um, both social media and alternative media. Uh, so um, what Bannon talked about, you know, he's often quite open about this. Uh, in Trump's campaign, strategic drowning or uh, is a common phrase. The way that you um, squeeze out other messages by just shouting so loudly yourself. In Russian, that is perovodstrelki, changing the tracks, the railway tracks. Uh, or using dramaturgia, some kind of big dramatic message to crown out other ones. Um, or sometimes the opposite. You know, Hillary Clinton had a minor problem with her email security. Trump has a massive problem with emails and documents. He's been bankrupt three or four times. Uh, he has a record as long, long as your arm for 
not surrendering emails and destroying documents. So I simply got shouting louder about Hillary's alleged problem. Um, uh, he got away with it, so it's Disintermediation, this Republican strategy, so you can uh, target voters directly and uh, feed them your ideological message. In Russian, that is the ideological syringe. So you give people a dose uh, of what you want them to, to believe. Uh, and so on and so um, Fake news has been around for ages in Russia. So this means compromising materials. Uh, some compromising materials are true, but they don't have to be. Um, <coughs> so not all of that is fake, but it has the same kind of function, etc. Next question. Uh, is Europe next? People ask this question all the time. Because we have big elections in Holland, in France and Germany. The answer is no, not in a reassuring way, because it's already happening in Europe. Um, in fact, the majority of hacks are certainly in Europe. Not in the way that's most often talked about. Um, I'm pretty sceptical about maps like this. Okay, this shows Russia's allies in Europe, UKIP, Fort Nacional. But as allies, okay. But you don't yet have in Europe or America what you had in Russia in the 90s. These kind of total fakes or puppet parties. You have strategic allies, which is rather different. But uh, social media <coughs> is particularly important for different reasons in some. And central, i.e., former communist Europe. Uh, in southern Europe, it's because of disillusion with 10 years of grinding recession. Central Europe, it's disillusion with elites being the big winners from transition from communism. Uh, TV is blue, uh, online is red. So even in Germany, online use is catching up. Even in Denmark, it's now Um But I was talking about Central and Eastern Europe. And even to Spain, Italy, and Greece, um, according to this particular poll, the use of social media is even higher than the US. So um, in Italy, for example, you have um, Cinque Stella, or the five-star movement, which prides itself on being Bolatti, which means brand new. Um, so it's not just a party, it's a kind of whole uh, universe of uh, social media. This is its official logo, Twitter, email, what have you. Uh, which is kind of its raison d'etre, almost. But it also leads Europe in resending messages of Russian origin. And this is a pretty mainstream party. Uh, some of them, because uh, for, for nothing, for no suspicious reason at all, if the, if the Russians say capitalism is a bad thing, Jim Costello agrees. American hegemony is a bad thing, Jim Costello agrees. Uh, but also real conspiracy theory, um, crazy stuff um, in what is a pretty mainstream movement. 
this is a survey public opinion in the Czech Republic, uh, where <coughs> Russian informal influence is very strong. 31% of Czechs believe fascist forces had a crucial influence on the Ukrainian government. 38% believe the Ukrainian crisis was forced by the US and NATO, etc. Um, so these, these kind of opinions are not marginal at all. Uh, another example from Hungary. Uh, you had a big crisis with refugees uh, two summers ago. Partly this was because of the sheer number of refugees. But Hungary, Hungary leads European opinion in this particular matter. Uh, refugees will only increase the likelihood of terrorism in our country. 76%. And this comes from that same three-part picture that I tried to draw, draw before. In Hungary, you have blatantly pro-Russian sites, some of which actually run out of Russia. Uh, I did the Italian, I won't attempt to pronounce Hungarian. Um, and the point here is that these interact with, feed into mainstream media, media which... Thank God for the BBC, we're still relatively okay. There's almost no fact-checking. So official media... Official media is a kind of open door for all this kind of stuff about migrants, but also um, other conspiracy theory. So I won't attempt the Hungarian, but what these graphs show is that leading up to the summer of the migrant crisis, You've got this vast explosion in Hungary of pro-Russian and anti-migrant sites. Uh, might be chicken and egg to be properly academic, but it's a pretty strong indication that social media was partly responsible for driving anti-migrant sentiment. So we'll mention Ukraine quickly. Despite three years of war, you've had one year of a, a campaign to restore economic relations with Russia, um, uh, which, and the flip side of which is Euro-realism. Basically, this is Europe, the European Soyuz. doesn't want the Ukrainians, won't let them in. It's a hashtag for the Ukrainian media. Um, which is a real enough sentiment, which, as I say, is the point. You take a sentiment and you nudge it, you, you fan it, you increase it. Um, it's a combination of old Soviet-style methods. Ordinary factory workers writing to the press and saying their factory is going to shut down unless trade with Russia resumes. Reporters go to this factory and no one no has ever seen this letter. That kind of thing. Um, but now, of course, you can amplify it online and in social media and then, uh, into the mainstream media because in Ukraine, a lot of that is controlled by local oligarchs. So, um, again, this works to some extent. So this is a recent opinion poll. Um, how do you view the events in Kiev in the winter of 2014? Were they an illegal military coup d'etat? Kind of a, a leading question. 
We agree, blue, rather agree, yes. So the point here is that opinion in the east and south of Ukraine is pretty soft. It's moving back towards what is basically a false Russia-led interpretation of their own revolution. Uh, uh, more than 50% in the east, the general east, not the occupied areas, agree with this contentious opinion. So almost done. Uh, what's next? Um, well, this is one thing that's next. Um, one of the kind of alt-right media sites in, in the US is Breitbart. Uh, that's kind of possibly setting up its own filials in Europe. Uh, but we're going to have this UK equivalent backed by um, the same guy who funded UKIP. Westmonster.com. So it's actually already live. Uh, I was tempted to make the obvious joke that this looks a bit like the Ingsoc logo in 1984. Uh, a little bit. Um, so, this is pretty a dangerous combination, which is the point. Um, political technology, if you're cynical enough, via Disruptive technology can do a lot of damage. The, the door is open for rich guys, mad guys, uh, crazy guys, fake guys, to use this kind of technology for their own purpose. Um, uh, either for political campaigns or for things like climate <laughs> change denial. <coughs> and it doesn't have to be about electoral majorities. <coughs> Uh, one reason why, um, sadly, um, far-right activism and even Holocaust denial is moving back towards the mainstream is partly due to this. Um, when, it's, uh, when, it, when it's the old kind of paradigm of a, uh, a few neo-Nazis and David Erning, David Erning in a beer keller, it's pretty obvious that you're a minority, you're a small group. But you can use this kind of technology to big it up. So Andreas Brevik, uh, the Norwegian mass murderer, is now a hero on social media. And he has an audience which doesn't think it's marginalised um, because said audience is exaggerated. So, uh, I won't finish on a false note of optimism. <laughs> I won't finish with policy recommendations either um, uh, what to do about this kind of thing I, I, I'm just giving you an kind of analysis of why I think it occurs I'll stop that. Thank you very much for that absolutely fascinating set of insights. We now have just a few minutes for question and answer. Um, would anyone like to put a question from the floor? Yep. Hi, thank you so much for your lecture. Can I have just one very simple question? What is the difference between virtual and alternative politics? Thank you. Uh, virtual means fake. Uh, alt, or alternative, Ironically, uh, comes out of the uh, 
Uh, guy in Cambridge, Massachusetts, the linguist. Chomsky? Yes, thank you, Pete. Uh, the current Chomsky in view that the, the traditional media is part of a capitalist machine and, it, and it's there to fool you. So alt media is, is media, it's alternative, which people escape to to get a truer message. But opinion polls show that once you're away from boring traditional stuff like fact-checking and uh, real newspapers, um, that people are more prone to conspiracy theories and um, this kind of ideological syringing uh, that by trying to hide from manipulation people are more vulnerable to manipulation. Uh, to what extent do you think that uh, Putin actually um, is a role model to people like not only Trump but the whole uh, number of strong men, authoritarian nationalists like Erdogan, a lot of them. And I'm not thinking only of, say, the Ukrainian crisis, which hit the West. People are aware of all the fake news, the lies, and so on. But going further back, because basically, even in 2000, with things like uh, Putin saying, Machitsertiri, and so on, that was outrageous, it seemed, at the time, and some of his public abuse. Do you think any of, you know, in the long term, whether any of that has had an effect on our leaders today? Uh, the quote in Russian was from 2000 about when Putin promised to... Wiping them out and on the toilets. toilets yeah. yeah, much ruder in Russian. We'll leave it there. Um, I've mainly talked about technique. Um, so your question is uh, a different but it's an interesting question. Um, there, there are I, people who are ideological sympathisers with Putin, which is slightly bizarre because he's so uh, cynical and manipulative by ideology. Um, is he left or is he right? You tell me. Um, so he, he can be a hero for genuine ideologues at both ends of the spectrum. But I think mainly it's what you say, this mirror image that people want to say, look, he's a tough guy. He, he's a strong leader. Uh, not to uh, low energy, to use a Trump phrase. Just like I. You know, so people are, not me, but, you know, pe people are trying to use, you know, get some of that sheen and portray themselves in a similar way in their own media environment. Up the back. Within this uh, system, you've outlined the Culture is universally cynical. Everybody is, to some extent. Uh, the extent to which these social media techniques are now used in Ukraine is really depressing. Everybody does it. Um, I mean, one way of interpreting the clash between Putin and Hodorkovsky in 2003, um, there are many. It is, it's over-determined 
There are all sorts of lines of conflict between them. But one way in which the struggle was played out was over political technology. You know, who has the most resources, who controls the parties, the media, or whatever. And, you know, the tougher guy won. Might be one way of looking. Um, a lot of this is all about the multiplier effect of, of um, fake robotic um, elements. Um, <coughs> is that something that um, uh, Gates or, or any, the, the big people who are sort of involved in the internet are looking at sort of cleaning the internet? They're, they're looking at cleaning it in many ways, aren't they? So. Are they also looking at trying to clean it of these uh, bot multiplier effects? Well, they were extraordinarily complacent uh, in the US campaign. Uh, criticism built up of their laxity during the campaign. Nothing was done. Tiny amounts have been done since November. Mainly about not just taking money from anybody. So a questionable side, even though it pays you money may now be excluded from Twitter. An obvious fake news generator. But there are all sorts of things out there that... Uh, I mean, I didn't give policy recommendations, but... Uh, there's been a series of stories in the, the Observer. One of the problems is political advertising on the internet is uh, from the advertiser to the, to the person's Twitter account or... Facebook account, so no one else ever sees it. Um, uh, so there's no way of checking on its uh, veracity or um, how truthful it is or anything like that. Um, so, you know, the, the, the things you could do there to, to make that, that process more open so you can actually look at this kind of invisible political advertising that we don't really know much about except in aggregate. Um, so a simple answer was that uh, uh, there are things you can do. Um, uh, but uh, companies like Facebook and Twitter need to do a whole lot more. Do you think that President Trump is cozying up to Putin to use Russia as a counterweight to China because he probably wants to have a bit of a spat with China over trade? There are many... Aspects to the punt, punt, some kind of a, a mountain, uh, Putin Trump um, <laughs> story. Uh, and you have a real press, which is, you know, there are still reasons to get out of bed in the morning, <laughs> which is, you know, drawing, drawing out this story. Yeah. Uh, partly because it's the great liberal obsession, the, the, the hope that Trump will, be, will fall on a Russian spike maybe be impeached. But there is a lot there. Um, some of which, as I say, is personal relationships, which are certainly worth exposing more. Partly it's geopolitics, sure. Um, what is Trump's foreign policy? You tell me. Uh, by the time I'd given you a definition, it would probably have changed. Well, that's a repeat of the triangular policy when Kissinger and Nixon opened up to China as a counterweight to the Soviet Union. Yes, I've heard that theory. It's pretty delusional. Um. 
the one optimistic note in this deeply miserable picture. That, I mean, it's a fantastic picture that you've painted, but it's utterly bleak and miserable. The only good word I heard in it was the possibility of impeachment. Whether that actually happens, another question indeed. But I'll turn over now to Pete Duncan to give the formal vote of thanks. Thank you, Mary. That's it. Well, first I'd like to uh, join my colleagues in that. Congratulations to Professor Andrew Wilson on the award of the chair in, personal chair in Ukrainian studies. Um, but what I want to say first is that despite being the top academic opinion former in the world about Ukraine, Andy is also an excellent colleague. Um, so it's just from personal experience. Uh, somebody goes away, you ask Andy, would you can to teach a course that's close for, to his interest, but on top of his existing workload, he's, he's agreed. Uh, I, whenever I want uh, a second interview for a research and student application, Andy agrees. We had one just yesterday, actually. So Andy's a, a super colleague as a fellow academic. Um, but what I also want to say is that today's lecture um, and the answers that uh, uh, Andy's given us in, to a wide variety of questions in, the, in a, quite a short time, um, as well as the absolutely fascinating lecture, He's shown that he's at home in political science, and he's shown uh, not just in political science, but in several other disciplines, his multidisciplinarity. And in this, uh, here, Andrew shows that he represents what's the best in CIS. And the other thing that he represents uh, as the best in CIS, I would say, is the concept of area studies without borders. That starting from our own region, from Ukraine and to Russia, uh, Andrew is now responding to global challenges of disruptive technology, uh, manipulation of social media, the threats in the alt-right and, and populism, and the threats to democracy over the world, including the United States and Europe. So uh, I salute you, Andrew, as you're representing the best in CIS. Congratulations. <laughs> and uh, Madam D, where are you there? Madam D, I move the vote of thanks.